listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Church, you may be seated and Steve Hudson asked me to pray for rain this morning, but I won't be doing that. If you do have your Bibles, though, I'd love for you to go to 2 Kings, of all places. Go ahead and find chapter 7. But has everything in your life, has everything in your life turned out exactly like you had hoped for? Or maybe have you ever wondered why God has not given you every desire of your heart? Somebody's quoted that verse in Psalm to you. And you're wondering, why has God not given me that desire? Or have you ever felt God leading you to something? You feel like you laid it on your heart. You feel like He affirmed this in you. You stepped out on faith, and it never materialized. Or at least, not like you had hoped. You know, sometimes things work out that we have planned, we had hoped for, we've worked towards, but sometimes it hasn't. You know, think of the idea of marriage. Maybe you're sitting there you thought, man, I'd be married by uh, when I'm this age. Or maybe you're in a marriage and it hasn't worked out. This kind of isn't what you expected. Maybe your children. Maybe you've got fewer or more than you desired or hoped for. Or maybe they've chosen a different path and you wish they hadn't. Or what about the idea of like a missionary training? We had a mission trip meeting coming up. Uh, our daughter is really excited to go with the McMahons to Uganda. She's trying to raise her money for that. Maybe this missionary training or maybe starting a ministry. I mean, you thought God was leading you to do it and it never developed. Or business. We all live in this world. that You had this idea, you thought God was calling you to do this, but it's been nothing but a struggle. Or you're doing something, you're wondering, is this really, is this really God's plan for me? You know, when we are around other people and maybe we're honest with them and we share some of these ideas, often you'll hear, well, God answers all prayers. And He answers them in one of three ways. It's either yes, no, or not yet. Well, this morning, I want us to see that I think there's actually a better answer To those questions. And we actually see it through the life of David. And you're there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you're going, wait, hold on. (laughs) We've been going kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And you just skipped 11 chapters. And you're right. uh, But let me kind of real quickly catch us up. So fast forwarding through 11 chapters. We left off last week in chapter 24. Where David spared Saul's life. Not once, but twice. Once in the cave, once even in Saul's own camp. So David then, if you were to keep reading in chapters 25 and 26 of of 1 Samuel, David actually goes and lives for a second time among the Philistines. The number one enemy of Israel, and that's where David goes. And he builds this relationship with a man named Achish. They become friends. Well, the Philistines are going to rise up and go to war Against Israel. And here's where things get strange. David offers to go with the Philistines to defeat Israel. Well, the Philistine leaders, they're not quite comfortable with this. And so David stays home. 
But then he goes to kind of conquer other areas around. And the Amalekites come and take David's wives. And let's just say that doesn't really go well for them. Because David comes back and he hears about it. And David goes and seeks revenge. But often in the east, the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting. Saul gets cornered. Saul doesn't want to be captured, so Saul falls on his own sword. And they even capture and kill Saul's sons, or at least most of them. David hears about this, and he mourns over Saul. The man's been chasing him for 10 or 12 years now, but David still mourns. And what we get is now a divided Israel. The one thing they didn't want, that's why they wanted a king. And what happens is, the southern part of Israel, Judah, they unite under David, and they make David their king. But Abner, Saul's number one man, he goes to one of Saul's sons that was spared, Ishboeth, and he becomes king of the northern area that typically we would call Israel. Well, David, or Israel is now divided, and in 2 Samuel 3, there is a long war going on. David is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, except Saul's group is getting weaker and weaker. So it doesn't take long. The sins of the father find their way to the son, and Ishbosheth, he is there, king now of the northern area, and he becomes paranoid, just like his father. And he accuses Abner of committing adultery with one of Saul's wives. So Abner's had enough. He runs and he joins now David. In Second Samuel chapter 4, David then defeats Ishboeth, and he is now anointed king over all of Israel. So Israel is finally united once again under God's king. Well, in 2 Samuel 6, it is this incredible, incredible chapter where David brings the ark into Jerusalem. But we're going to save that for Palm Sunday. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's pick up today. And let me tell you, this is one of the most significant chapters of all of the Old Testament. In fact, I was reading when I knew where we were going to be. I thought, man, there's no wars. Nobody's going to die. No heads getting chopped off. Man, this is going to be boring. That is until you get into it. And what you'll see, if you've ever heard of the Davidic covenant, that is what this chapter is all about. But I want to give you an outline. If you like to kind of take notes, here's how I've kind of divided the chapter. In uh, this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 5 is going to be what I call God grants peace. We're going to see that. Next will be the idea that God never retires. God's grace. God is going to be all in for his people. And then we will see David's response. So let's go to what I like to call God grants peace, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word came to the Lord, to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Who, who would you build me a house 
that I must dwell in. So here's kind of what's happened. David is experiencing peace and we could say rest, probably for the first time in over 10 years. He's run for his life. He's fought battle after battle, war after war. So he's got peace at home and he's got peace in the nation. The military, it's finally stable. No threats from Saul. He doesn't have to worry anymore. And it says all is at peace. And it's just that that moment of that all is well within David's soul. So this is how I imagine it is that David is resting at home. You know, the kids are playing around. The wives are all happy. Yes, plural, we'll get to that. They're all happy. And David's just at peace. It's, it's almost like he's sitting at home with his feet up. There's a fire going. And he's just watching the, the wood crackle. But he begins to think and he begins to deeply think about his life. When that happens, there's something weighing on David. He looks at all that he has, and it says in your Bibles that he has a house of cedar, and and this means luxury. But as he begins contemplating, he thinks about the vast difference from living in the caves, and he thinks about the ark. The ark was the symbol. It's where God's presence dwelled. And he realizes, wait, there's something wrong. If I'm living... In this house of cedar, why is the ark just sitting among curtains? And David thinks, you know, I've got an idea. I'm going to build God a house. In fact, I'll build him a house that this world has never seen before. And the ark will come and it will be there. And it will be a house just for him. So he goes and he talks to Nathan, the the new prophet, Samuel's uh, follower. And he says, go and do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. And here's what we will see. Have you ever had an idea that you were so excited about? What happens? You can't sleep at night. You're up dreaming. I imagine he's drawing it out. He's envisioning, you know, he's looking through all the, uh, the HGTV magazines. and He's getting all these ideas. He's like, this is going to be amazing. But in verse 4, it says, Then that same night, God spoke to Nathan. And he said, So David wants to build me a house. Well, not so fast. But notice that this is, a, this is a, it's a noble idea. It's a good idea. It's a God-honoring idea. In fact, David, he has no selfish motives. No desire for this to be David's name. In fact, he wants to exalt God's name above everything else. He wants to build God a home. So here's our first kind of point of application is that sometimes we will have noble ideas, good ideas, in fact, God-honoring ideas. And sometimes those will be God's will, and sometimes they will not. But here's what's happening is that we'll see this even with David. When this happens, it isn't God punishing David. David doesn't get rebuked. What God is going to do, he's going to interrupt so that he can redirect David's plans. And this is what happens to David. We get to verse 6 that I like to call, God never retires. There's this conversation that is going to go on between God and David. It says this, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any of the judges of Israel 
whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have not you not built me a house of cedar? So David has this noble idea, but God says, David, listen, I appreciate it, but I haven't asked for a house. And it's almost like David sees God as, hey, man, you've been working. You've been working really hard. Why don't you just now rest? You know, set your feet up. Come and join in this big house of cedar. Man, it's so great now. You don't have to worry. It's almost like he wants God to settle down and to kind of find a permanent resting place. But God tells David, listen, David, I don't need a place to just sit in a rocking chair and rock the days away. So God says, listen, David, I've been active. I've been moving around in the tent where Israel went. David, did you notice that I was already preparing the way? God says, listen, I've always been active, and I will continue to be active. I will never retire. God, he says, listen, David, I don't need a tent, at least not yet. That time will come. But first, David, I need to secure a place for Israel, and I will not rest until my people rest. You know, the great thing is, this even applies to us today. That God will never rest until every single one of His promises are fulfilled. And that includes bringing His people home. So God will take a moment and He's going to remind David of all that He has been doing. And this next one I like to call God's grace. So last week, you remember we talked about one side of God's grace that we often don't talk about. It's the idea of restraining grace. That God restrains us from being worse than we actually are, than we could be. But the other side of this coin would be the idea that we often think about grace. It's a, a demonstration, a picture, a, a way of God's love that we don't earn. We don't deserve it. And we could never repay it. And that's what he gets into in chapter, chapter 7, verse 8. This is how it reads. Now therefore, uh, thus you shall say to your servant David, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord of the host says, I took you from the pasture. Do you remember that, David, when you were just a shepherd from following the sheep? That you should be a prince of my people Israel. So here's what God is going to do. There's going to be eight things he's going to walk down. First of all, he says, listen, David, I was the one that brought you from shepherd to prince. That God has done something far greater than David could ever imagine and dream of. In verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. That God has been with them, no matter where they went in the wilderness Upon Sinai, from slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, times of peace, times of war, God says, I was there. He goes on to say, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Meaning God has always protected them. No matter who the enemy was, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Amalekites, God says, I was protecting you. And I will make your, you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. God promises, listen, David, I will make your name great, a name that the world will never forget. But he's not done. 
In verse 10, he says, I will appoint a place for my people of Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. That God is going to create a unique place for his people. He's going to block off. He's going to set apart a place that is specifically for his chosen. And they will be disturbed no more. Meaning God will grant them peace. He says, a violent man, you know what? He shall affect them no more as formerly they did. From the time that I appointed the judges over Israel. And I will give rest from your enemies. Meaning, you know what? You'll no longer have to fear. And lastly, he says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Meaning he'll make David a house. God says, David, I don't need you to build me one. I will build you one. And you see this. This is all about God's grace towards his people. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And they could never pay this back, what God is going to do for them. But we need to notice this play on words here. Earlier, David said, you know what, God? I'll build you a house. God says, not so bad. And that word house can simply mean dwelling. Three or four walls and a roof. But in this word, God says, you want to build me a house, a dwelling, not so fast. I will build you a dynasty. I will make your name great forever. Listen, that's a lot of huge promises to never have to fear, to always be protected, to have a place that is your own, a name above all names that will never be forgotten, and a dynasty. That's a lot of big promises. And what happens anytime someone makes you a promise? Probably the first thought you have is, will they keep their word? Are they really going to do what they said? And then it seems like everything comes at that promise, circumstances, the battle that goes on in our own heads. Life happens trying to stop that promise from happening. But God is then in verse 12 going to show David and his people and eventually us that he is all in for his people. In fact, these next six verses or so, this is really the heart of the covenant with David. What we just read were the promises. But now we're going to see that God is going to say, listen, there isn't anything. Absolutely nothing will stop me from fulfilling my promises. In fact, God is going to lay up every threat to these promises and God is going to look them in the eye and say, not so fast. It's almost like, those movies that we love, those heroes movies where uh, maybe they take one of their family members. We're thinking of the Liam Neeson with Taken. And we love those scenes where somehow they get a hold of the enemy and they let them know, you know what? I'm coming. And nothing is going to stop me. Just be put on notice. Your days are numbered. And that's kind of what happens here. Look at verse 12. So we have all the promises of the Davidic covenant that God makes these promises to David. But then he says, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you. And who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
And he shall build a house for my name. So David, you're not going to build me a house. The one after you, it'll be Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the first threat to any promise is death. So when you die, David, he says, I'll raise up your son. And even though he will die, there will be a kingdom forever. So death is a threat to this promise. But you know, death is also a threat to everything that you love in this world. Death can take your money, your career. It can separate your children, your spouses. Talk to a lady this week. that She said, man, it's been two years since my husband died. I can't tell you the void that is left. Possessions. Death can take all of the things that you love and can separate from you. Death is still our enemy. But the truth of the gospel is that enemy has been defamed. And because if you are in Christ, here's what happens. Death is your enemy. In fact, death is the enemy of everyone. But if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, death is the only thing that can separate you from the things of this world and at the same time bring you face to face with the one who truly and perfectly loves you. Death thinks it wins, but it brings you the most important and most valuable thing in your life. It brings you to Jesus. So God says to his people, listen, don't worry. My word can be trusted. Death is no threat. Then in verse 14, you get threat number two. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. With the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So the second threat to any promise is sin. And God says, you know what, David? When he commits iniquity, when he sins and he rebels, I'll discipline him. But my love will never depart from him. So God says to his children, even including David, there is nothing that can happen that will separate you from my love. Sin will come, and you know what happens? And Satan will use that sin to try to discourage you, to try to drive you away from God. And this is what he does in my life. It'll even get you to try to doubt God's promises. Because you know what he does? He takes that sin that you just committed, and he throws it in your face, and he says, look at you. I mean, God could never love you. God doesn't want you. You can't trust God's promises because why would he love a sinner like you? But that's when Jesus gets to step in between you and the accuser and he gets to say, no, no, no more. My father will not listen to one syllable of an accusation against one of his own. In fact, you can throw them all you want, but you know what? Christ says they're blameless. Not because they're perfect, but because I am. So he says, death is no threat. Sin, you can't stop these promises. But in verse 16, we get one of Satan's greatest weapons in threat number three. He says, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, and notice the word, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, 
in accordance with all the visions Nathan spoke to David. So God says to David, David, death is no threat. Sin is no threat. And no longer how long it takes, time is no threat to my promises. And I think this is one of the greatest weapons that Satan uses because time can slowly allow us to doubt. Time moves forward and Satan will try to convince you that there is no more hope for the situation that you were in. Because we tell ourselves if things were going to change, they already would have. But God looks right into the eyes of time and he says, no, 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 time. You do not get to control me. You serve at my pleasure. So he says there are these verses, you put them all together and it says, you know what? Let death, sin, and time do what they will, but they will never derail God's kingdom plan for coming through David's dynasty or his house. Meaning God's plan is going to run through David and it is simply unstoppable. God will overwhelm death. He'll overwhelm sin. He will overwhelm time if needed to bring about his plan. Because here's what happens though. You read that and you go, but death came for David. Solomon and many others and death is coming for us. Sin. It's going to run wild within David. And we'll look at that in two weeks. Time is going to move on. The kingdom of Israel, you know what happens? It's going to be divided again. They'll fight amongst themselves. A great temple will be built, but it'll be destroyed. And you read this and it seems like the enemy actually does win. That God was wrong and that he can't be trusted. Because you read all these promises and it seems like God is not keeping his word. That is until you start turning those pages. And you come to the other testament. And you begin to read that there is going to become a day. That there has been a day. That another child is born. A child of David. And he'll actually be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And in that child there is no sin. Time will not control him. He will control time. Death will try to take him, but then he will conquer death. And so here's what you see. All of these promises of David, they actually find their yes, not in David, but in David's son, Jesus. So I want you to see lastly David's response, because this is great. Because David's going to do two things. Two things I think that are really important For us today. So let's look at verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. And he says, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So David is overwhelmed by God's grace. And I believe he's thinking about Psalm 8, where he says, Who is man that you even think of us? And David is at this point that he is overwhelmed with gratitude. And doesn't it seem like that we live in such a time of entitlement? That, man, we feel like we are owed so many things. And if you don't get it right now, then something is off in the universe. But I know this about myself, is that when I feel entitlement trying to crowd in and control me, that gratitude is the only thing 
that seems to push its forces away. And then David says in verse 19, And yet, this was no small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So he thinks about all that God has done. He says, God, this was just a small thing for you. But here's where it gets impactful. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? Meaning, what more can I say, Lord? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promises and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant even know it. Therefore, you are great, O God. For there is none like you And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before his people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. So David praises God for his grace. He praises him for his power. And then he praises God for creating and establishing his people. But I want to zero in on verse 23. Because I think we get a a warped view Sometimes of Christianity and what it does. He says that God redeemed or he rescued them out of Egypt. And we often get this mindset of a group going in of a, a special forces and somebody's held in captivity and, and they, they defeat the enemy and they release them and it's for freedom's sake. They, they come in and they release them so that they can have freedom. But with God, it's a little bit different. And does he release us for freedom? Absolutely. But there is another important part of Christianity and the Christian faith. And we see it in verse 23, that God rescues you and me from a different enemy. God grants us freedom, but it's not for freedom's sake. Meaning this, that God grants us freedom, not just so that we'll be free. In fact, that'd be the worst thing God could do probably. But he grants us freedom so that we can belong to him. God grants us freedom from sin and death and Satan, not just for independence, but so that we could be his. Meaning if you believe or you trust in Jesus, you have been ransomed, you have been rescued out of your empty way of life by Christ's blood. But he tells us we're not our own. We are his That we have been bought with a price. And no matter what tries to threaten that. Sin, death, time. The truth is that we are the Lord's. And then lastly, David, he pleads with the Lord. In verses 25 through 29. He goes to the Lord. And if you just read down through these verses. It's this idea of, of David praying. And we do this. And we ask God for things. But when you read down through these verses, it's interesting that David prays God's promises. 
Because prayer for me is a mysterious thing, or at least how God works with prayers. But David here is praying, and sometimes we pray, and, and we see God answer, and it's obvious. But other times, it seems that God says no. But I know this, that if we pray God's promises, you can stand in all confidence that that will come to pass. Now, we can pray God's promises, then we can count on God to come through. So let me give you an example. Praying for a difficult time. Maybe it's a healing that needs to happen. And we pray with confidence that God can heal. We want to be with David and say, God, that's just a small thing to you. But we don't always know what God's will is. And so we would humbly pray, God, if this is your will, we know you can, but will you do it? But we can pray this in confidence. We can pray, God, sustain me through this difficult time. God, be my all in all. God, through this struggle, would you make your name great? Lord, would you never leave me nor forsake me? And those are prayers that you can count on, that you can take them to the bank. So I'll close with this. I think David in this section, and listen, it is so profound, we could spend weeks on it. But I think David learns two primary lessons. First, you know what? Sometimes we're going to have dreams. We're going to have ideas. And sometimes things are going to work out better than you could imagine. But sometimes things will not go like you planned, not like you dreamed, or even that you hoped for. Like we said in the beginning, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's children, maybe a ministry idea, or, or ministry training, or maybe with a business. And you've probably heard, and you've probably had to, people tell you, and you've said this to people, well, God answers in yes or no, or not yet. But I want to give you a better way to think about it. As David had a noble idea, he, he wanted to build God a temple, but God had a different plan. God had a better plan. So I think God actually answers prayers this way, and it's really in one of two ways. God either answers yes or better, meaning that God's no is always better. But yes, yes, go and do that. But sometimes God says, no, have something better. The second thing I think God uh, teaches David in this is that God, David learns that God's promises can always be trusted. That we can trust the promises of the Bible because of the God that is behind the promises. Because what we saw was that God not only rules over the promises, He makes the claim and He rules over it, but he also rules over all the conditions to make that promise come true. And if it's a promise from God, there is no threat that can stand in its way. So I'll leave us with two questions. What are you asking God for in your life right now? Where is it that you are asking God to act? Or where are you asking Him to lead you? Remember, His answers are always yes. Or better. But the second one would be where in your life do you need more faith in God's promises? Where are you finding your way wavering? 
The challenge will be find that promise and cling to it. And knowing that nothing will stand in God's way from keeping his word. Not death, not sin, and not time. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.